Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring financial advisors new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place for advisors to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking elite RIAs and what it takes to become an elite RIA. To table set, we're defining elite RIAs as those firms that are growing more productively than their peers because of the differences in their operations, in marketing, and in the client experience they provide. There's no better person to talk about this than with Mike Watson, the head of RIA custody at Axos Advisor Services. Axos recently completed a study of these habits of our elite RIAs to share with every advisor who has a goal of becoming elite. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Doug. It's, it's great to be here with you today. Who are these elite RIAs and what makes them elite? Yeah, well, thank you. And as you mentioned, we did produce a elite advisor RIA study in partnership with Investment News. Uh, we conducted the study last year. We produced the, the re- results this year. We had over 400 respondents, and we used a final sample of about 250 respondents to complete the, uh, the findings and produce the, the study. And what the data showed about these elite RIAs and really what makes them elite is, uh, first, they're, they're RIA-affiliated firms. So these are independent RIAs and, and, and uh, RIA hybrids affiliated with a broker-dealer. Uh, they have at least $250 million in assets under management. Uh, but more importantly, they scored in the top 50th percentile in firm productivity. And that really means it's measured revenue per professional, including the partners and, and advisors. So that's the first lens we looked at. Did they score in the top 50th percentile in firm productivity? And then we looked at... Uh, they had to also score in the top 50th percentile of revenue per staff, which is total total headcount. And the elite RIAs out of the 250 respondents accounted for fewer than 25% um, of the firms that participated in our, in our study. So these are firms that are really excelling at firm productivity as well as revenue per staff. Are there characteristics that distinguish elite RIAs from others? Well, yeah, there is, I mean, the, the one big one that, that stands out, and it's one you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear, um, it's really their size. The, the median elite RIA firm was managing $550 million in assets in two, uh, 2020, nearly five times the size of the other firms in, in the survey. Uh, the revenue for the elite firms was $4.4 million compared to about $750,000 for other firms, so they're larger. They're generating more revenue, and they tend to serve a larger client base with a median of 563 clients compared to 200 for, for non-elite firms. But more important than, you know, they're big, they generate a lot of revenue, is, is really the productivity. These, they employ a larger staff to support the larger client base, uh, but they tend to do more with less, which is why we're seeing that productivity and profitability get boosted. The, the median revenue for, for each professional at an elite firm was about almost 750000 
$733,000, which is almost two times as great as professional productivity at the other firms. And, and similarly, the median revenue per employee at elite RA firms was 366, almost 367,000 or, or double that of other firms. So these, the characteristics are really about, these are, are firms that have, uh, they're generating more revenue. Um, they are managing greater number of assets. They're, they're serving a larger client base but most importantly, they're doing it in an efficient way, boosting that productivity and revenue per employee compared to the other firms. I know that we're grouping these together and every advisor is unique, but are there strategies that make elite RAs more productive and more profitable? Yeah, you know, I, that's, that's a tough one because you're right. And I, what I love about our space is there is, everyone is unique and they ha everyone has a, a niche, but if we were to sort of bring it all together and just look at the data and say, what, what does the data show us? Um, you'd see that um, they tend to focus on higher net worth clients. Um, and the, the elite firm, 78% serve households with 10 to $30 million of investable assets. And that's just about a third of the other firms would work with that. And, and nearly half of the elite advisors um, targeted, so it's about 46%, targeted households with over $30 million in wealth. And for the smaller firms, you know, your mass market RIAs, that's only about 15% for them. So elite RIAs were also more likely to work with, with institutional clients. So think of like retirement plans and endowments and, and foundations. And by focusing on these wealthier clients, they can not only earn higher asset-based fees, but they have more opportunities to distinguish themselves through integrated wealth management. The, the higher net worth clients tend to have more complex financial needs, right? Like estate planning, tax planning, uh, foundations and charitable giving and that sort of thing. And that gives these advisors more opportunities to add value in the relationship and potentially generate more fee-based income. So they're, they're just going deeper uh, with these, these particular clients and offering uh, more types of services. And by doing that, they're able to really work with these larger, higher net worth clients. Positioning yourself in this space can be everything. So how do elite RIAs define themselves? Because as we know, you are what you say you are. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting because this is sort of a, a double-edged sword, I would say. Um, there are 17,650 retail RIA firms around the country, at least according to Cerulli's report last year. And in, uh, that's interesting. If you really break down the cohort groups below that, you, you have four different cohort groups. You have money managers, you have investment planners, you have financial planners, and then you have wealth managers. And what elite RIAs, the way that they define themselves as a, is really that high end on that continuum. The last group that I mentioned, they consider themselves to be wealth management firms with a primary focus on being holistic, being a holistic advisor, providing integrated tax, estate planning, personal financial planning, getting into investment advisor services, of course, but also taking a look at assets and liabilities and, and really going deep. But why I said this is a double-edged sword is there's also a, a little bit of 
this business convergence that's taking place within our industry, this mischaracterization of services that that people provide. Now, what these elite firms do really, really well is the proof is in the pudding. So if you say you're a, uh, a wealth management firm being holistic, you really need to make sure you're adding the services. That's what these firms are doing that really separates themselves. But across the industry, I think we have this mischaracterization of what firms do I think a lot of RIAs believe that they're providing those types of services, but once you get below the surface, you find that they really, there really isn't a lot of depth to the services that they offer. These elite firms are demonstrating that, not just by calling themselves wealth management firms, but by showing their clients, by being holistic and offering uh, a broader array of services than, than the other firms. All right, now that we set the table on who these people are, Let's talk about what sets the RAs apart in terms of service model and fees. Why is their service model and the use of human capital something that sets them apart from others? Um, this one's an interesting one too, because it's it doesn't matter what industry you're in. Yeah, I, I believe that there's three ways in which any any business can differentiate. And it's not original thought. There's tons of research um, related to this. It's you can be the low cost provider, right? There's think about uh, outside of our industry, there's Walmart, Southwest Airlines, you can lead with, with low price. Um, you could also be the most uh, product sophisticated like Tesla or, or Nike and, and be really sophisticated there. Uh, the third area in which firms can differentiate is through the client experience. And this is what these elite firms are doing. They focus intently on the quality of the client experience which they believe is best enhanced by having advisors and support staff work in teams. So that's the important distinction is these are, they're trying to differentiate on the client experience. And unlike other firms, they're taking a team-based approach and that sets them apart from the advisor centric model of most other firms in which an individual asset gatherer owns the relationships. At elite RIA firms, relationships rarely belong to a single uh, advisor. In fact, only 22% of elite RA firms um, have clients assigned to individual advisors. Uh, instead, at, at 35% of elite firms, a team of advisors support staff and are assigned to each client. And so that's an important distinction is they, they really take that, that team-based approach. And, and the use of, of teams at, elite, at, at these elite firms, it serves a few purposes. First, it ties the client closer to, to the firm uh, rather than to an individual advisor. So it creates a stronger bond with the firm and also enhances the firm's brand uh, by formalizing a, a service delivery model, right? It's, you want a repeatable process. If everyone's assigned to individual advisors, the experience that each of those advisors is gonna have is gonna vary from, from advisor to advisor, but these elite firms take that team-based approach. So they're able to curate a very consistent service delivery model that does not depend on a single individual. This makes attracting new clients easier uh, by being able to provide a strong brand rather than promote a single individual. Uh, it also increases the enterprise value of the firm because it demonstrates that it's a process-driven organization rather than just a collection of individual practitioners. Elites also provide a broad array of services I mentioned uh, than other firms which creates a sort of virtuous cycle that attracts even more wealthy clients. Uh, 
more than other firms, I'd say, uh, elite RIAs typically offer things like estate planning, education planning, business owner services, concierge services. They're doing banking, managing assets and liabilities, in addition to the typical menu offered by, by most advisor firms. Then to a greater degree than, uh, than firms generally, they provide cash flow planning and uh, major purchase consulting and property and casualty insurance. So again, they're just, they're going much, much deeper. So essentially, I guess what we're saying is they've, they've transitioned their firm from a practice in which one or a few professionals are responsible for, for business development and client relationships and operations to a business in which functions are formalized it's carried out by specialized personnel. And that transition from, from practice to business leads to an enterprise that's, that's much more professional, has brand and enterprise value, and can serve more clients more profitably. This next one really popped out at me. Elite RIAs tend to view their firm client relationship differently, which surprised me. But how is that? You know, it, it really gets back to the, the same thing. It's, it's the team-based approach that these firms are taking. Uh, they look at the firm-client relationship differently in that the, the client doesn't belong to me, the advisor. Uh, I may be an advisor at a larger firm, and these, are, these clients belong to the enterprise. And because they belong to the enterprise, they're able to wrap a lot more of those services around. So it's, it's really a lot of the same stuff that I was saying you know, previously, which is uh, they take a holistic view. Uh, you don't have a, a, a bunch of silos of, of, or buckets of individual clients belonging to individual producers or individual uh, advisors. Instead, you have a collection of clients. They all belong to the firm. They take a team-based approach and wrap services around them. And that is the difference between how these elite advisors tend to approach the, the client relationship versus uh, the others. Yeah, more people are touching them. How is investment management delivered by elite RIAs versus all others? You know, and this is an interesting trend because a lot of the stuff that I see, and I still believe this, most firms, if you think about just the numbers, right, like 87% of I gave you that 17,650 RIA firms, right? Like now let's go, let's double click into maybe firms by, by size. I gave you by business model and how they kind of break down. But if you think about it by size, 61% of that 17,650 firms, 61% have under a hundred million dollars. 77% have under 250 million. 87% have under, uh, under 500 million. Now you remember when we talked about these elite firms, they're managing on average about 550 million. If the smaller firms, what they're tending to do is outsource investment management, and that makes sense. They haven't received, they haven't achieved that level of scale. But these larger firms, these elite advisors, they're more likely than others to keep investment management in-house. They have a dedicated team of professionals. In cases where they, they do outsource some of their investment management, it tends to be specific asset classes, things like alternative investments or, or maybe for their smaller, less profitable accounts, they're, they're using digital advice platforms to and models to, to really deliver investment advice to the smaller accounts. 
But for the big firms, they've really brought that stuff in-house, uh, and they're less likely to outsource investment-related functions, things like portfolio construction, management, trading. Uh, they keep it in-house, and they're also more likely than other firms to even use external uh, parties to set investment policies or portfolio design or, or allocation strategy. So they're really bringing it all in-house. It makes sense. These are bigger firms. They're providing more services. They've achieved a great amount of scale, and therefore they're, they're able to bring that stuff in-house. But again, cautionary tale for those that are listening, if, if you have 50 or 60 or $70 million in assets under management, and you're saying, gosh, I really want to be like an elite firm, there are iterative steps that you want to take. You don't want to just say, okay, boom, I'm going to hire a bunch of people, bring it all in-house. That's not going to work. I think there's some baby steps that you need to do, but these big firms, especially when it comes to uh, investment management, they, they've gone beyond the point of outsourcing. They're now bringing this stuff in-house. You found that fees make a big difference in the RAs that are, are elite versus the others. How so? Well, the, the core value proposition for these elite firms is it's all about the fact that they're a holistic manager um, of their clients' wealth. Yes, they do investment management. There's an emphasis on investment management. They're financial advisors, but they, are, they have a very strong value proposition. And what we find, at least in this study, is that they're much less likely to react to forces that may change compensation or the pricing structure versus other firms. Aside from being more willing than others to raise fees if they expand their service offerings, these elite firms are less likely to change prices as a result of things like, you know, changing demands from individual investors or these digital advice platforms that have repriced investment management or lower cost investment products or the demographic shift and, or any of that stuff. So these firms are pretty set and they don't see a need for them to be able to, uh, to change their fees. And the reason is they have that strong value proposition, right? Like if you're an advisor and all you do is provide investment management, well, if I'm an end client, you may look at some of these digital services out there and say, well, gosh, you provide me with a service. It's, you manage my investments but I can go over here and have that same thing done for a fraction of what you're charging me. These elite advisors have seen that and they've plugged the delta between investment management and the fees that they've charged by adding more and more services. They're going deeper, uh, they're being more holistic. And as a result, they have, they're much less likely to react to those forces that we talked about. They have less of this pricing pressure because they have such a strong value proposition. Do you see a change in fee structure coming, perhaps a move towards a flat retainer? Boy, I hope so. Um, I don't know. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. I've been talking about this one for forever. I do think, look, advisors have to get paid for the value that they deliver. What's interesting, um, I'm surprised that it hasn't happened yet, but I did see a study by Bob Varis, and I thought this was really interesting. It showed that 35% of advisors are contemplating changes to, to new fee structures over the, the next five years. And I think the study was just done, done last year. Now I talk to advisors every day and I'm, I'm hearing this myself, but if you dig a little bit deeper 
around who's really looking at this and who is starting to adopt these, these flat retainers, we see that advisors with 15 years or less experience are using flat fees. And, and they're doing it at a, at a much greater level than advisors that have 15 years of experience or more. Hmm, that's interesting, but it makes sense, right? Um, I, ultimately, I believe this is being driven by the end clients and, and not necessarily the advisors themselves. And advisors that are relatively new to this industry, right? So less than 15 years, they're li likely working with some of the younger clients. And I think that is the reason why you're seeing this sort of adoption of flat retainers at a higher level with these sort of less experienced advisors. It's really being driven by their end clients who may say, hey, I'm interested in paying a retainer for these services. I'm not necessarily interested in, in perpetuity paying sort of a, a percentage. I want you to deliver some value to me. I'll pay you for that, that value. And it's gonna be up to you to deliver more value over time and I'll pay you for that. So it's interesting. I think this is something we're gonna to have to take a look at. You know, you and I have talked on a previous one about this intergenerational kind of wealth transfer. And we'll have to see, you know, if that, how that's really gonna play out. But I think what you will see more than anything is perhaps this behavioral change that will have to take place because that next generation of investor wants to engage differently than you and I um, or the, the, the clients that advisors tend to have that are, you know, a little bit more, a, a little bit more experienced, a little bit older. So this is interesting, but getting back to uh, the fee structure changing, it's still early. People have been talking about it. There is some adoption of this flat retainer. It tends to be with these advisors that are less experienced than you know, less than 15 years of experience. And again, I think it's ultimately being driven by their end clients. So to continue on on the fee thing, how can these elite RIAs handle the competitive pressure to modify or reduce their fees and still stay successful? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really all about, it requires a, a client understanding and appreciation of the value that they're receiving from their firm. And on either the last podcast or the, the second to last podcast, and I'm even seeing this now. I'm at a I'm at a client event. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at a conference tomorrow, and I'm at a hotel. And I gave you the same example before. I I feel like these elite firms they're doing more, but they're also explaining what they do. They're articulating it. Uh, they're over communicating their value proposition. They're continuing to communicate and articulate where and how their firm is creating value for for clients. Whether that's Use, leveraging socials or their newsletters or their websites or brochures or when people come into the office having information, they're continuing to communicate and talk about all of the different things that they do. And in addition to the value that, that they provide, there's expected areas such as investment management and, and financial planning, but it's the ongoing value of the advice and things like are they offering banking services? Are they providing education planning? Are they helping out with taxes? Are they helping out with business management types of issues? That's where these elite firms are, are really, really good. There's an expectation that clients have when you hire a financial advisor. Yes, you're going to get investment advice. Absolutely. It's the stuff that they're not expecting that you are putting a lot of value on. You want to make sure your clients understand that 
so that you're getting the value from, from the clients. Um, and they're also emphasizing the high degree of personal service uh, that the firm is able to deliver that can't be found elsewhere. So they're, they're really taking that kind of concierge sort of approach with these clients, uh, more formal communication. They're leveraging uh, tools, especially because of the pandemic, video and other things to be able to engage with, engage with clients in new ways and making sure that they continue to over-communicate the value proposition that they have with clients. I just can't overemphasize the importance of, I talked, we talked earlier about the advisors are unique. They're very unique. I'm blown away by every time I talk to advisors and see all of the things that they're doing and how much they care and all of the services that they're providing. But if their clients don't know about that, then it, it's really for nothing. And so I, I, I just want to make sure that people understand, get paid for the value that you deliver, continue to over-communicate the, the services that you provide. If you do an effective job of that, you'll have less pricing pressure. You'll be able to get more, more clients. You'll be able to move upstream and work with higher net worth clients. Uh, so it's really just about communication, messaging, looking to go deeper with these clients, being a good listener and wrapping solutions around the issues that you're trying to solve. That's great advice. And that's a wrap for today. But stay tuned for part two when we talk about how elites differ in their strategies, both business and in growth. Mike, thanks for being with us today. That's really great stuff. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. Please follow us for all the latest updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.